So in the interview that you're about to hear, one of our guests mentions a thing that he wrote on Facebook, and we never actually got to talk about specifically what that was, but I want to read it for you now to launch off the episode. So this is Sherrod Yadav. If Kierkegaard is right, and all distinctions between the many different kinds of love are essentially abolished by Christianity, then the beauty of that vision which entices me to follow the breadcrumbs of joy found in its daily foreshadowing, in casually spoken kindnesses, routine dignities, regular human regard, actually invites an impossible burden into my life. If I were to stoop to look at the stained and dilapidated face piled on top of the crumpled garbage lying against the bus stop, only to see my father, or to spy two police officers fist-bumping one another with sickening bravado after dislocating an elderly Alzheimer's patient's shoulder, only to recognize my own brother and sister, and on and on multiplied by every conceivable human failure and tragedy. How would life cease to be a horror? Why would anyone willingly thaw that blessed insensitivity which allows us to live with such ubiquitous pain? Christ's passion is the only version of love that seems to notice that when you open yourself to the world, it will crucify you. After having fallen in love with his vision, I feel doomed to the necessity of it because I am wedded to the hope of it. I very often find that to be a misery, not a joy. When I hear Peter's words, to whom else should we go, for you have the words of life, it's hard for me not to sympathize with the tragic desperation of that sentiment. The idea of human brotherhood no longer warms my heart as much as it terrifies me with its awesome emotional demands. Welcome to A Pastor and Philosopher Walking to a Bar. Today on the show, we're talking with a couple of guys that I've been wanting to have on the show for a long time and was fortunate enough to get them both on simultaneously. And that is Samir and Sherrod Yadav, who are identical twin brothers. One of them is a pastor in Portland. The other is a theologian in Santa Barbara, California, uh, but also basically a philosopher. He works uh, on mm-hmm. issues that are very philosophical. So they're basically the perfect pair of people to have on our show. Yeah. Uh, and this is just a really delightful but also pro found conversation that yep. we're going to have. So you're in for a treat. Yeah. And I mean, super fun conversation. I have, I don't think I've laughed that much at an episode during an episode uh, yet. And also just want to say there is a little bit of, a little bit of swearing. So you might want, if you're listening in the car with your kids, wait or put on, put on earbuds, but yeah. uh, get ready. It's a fun episode. Yeah. Good stuff. And we have some fun to drink today too, that I'm really excited about. So uh, I texted Elliot today, randomly asking him when his birthday was, and it turns out that it's in like, what, four days. Yeah. So I've been sitting on this. I bought it specifically for you because it's called Elliot. <laughs> so this is, uh, this is the first mead we've had on the show. So not a beer, not a whiskey, not a wine. I'm excited. This is, some people claim the oldest beverage humans have ever made. I don't know if there's good evidence that it's actually older than wine or beer, but maybe it is. I don't know. Uh, Dr. Pepper? Basically. <laughs> yeah. Uh, other than Dr. Pepper, the oldest beverage. Right, right, right. Basically, every country that has a long history has some version has of mead, mead yeah. in, their, in their history. Uh, basically, just a fermented honey beverage. Mm-hmm. So you mm-hmm. can think of it as wine, but made from honeys and honey instead of grapes. Uh, so what we have in front of us is from a place called Manic Meadery in Crown Point, Indiana. 
And this is a melomel, which means it's mead with fruit. So this is a blueberry mead. And I'm gonna I'm gonna say something it strong like here. Say something extreme, but I think mead, particularly melomels, are the best tasting things in existence. Whoa! Um, now I haven't had this out. one, so I can't I can't make that claim for this one. But I've had meads that I would take over any whiskey, any wine, any beer. The last thing I want to have in my mouth when I die is a mead. <laughs> Randy's shaking his head for. So, so this one's called Elliot. Happy birthday. Yeah. Elliot. Cheers. Cheers. I have never had a mead. I've had a mead, but it was the, what's, what's the fermented honey and water? And that's it. What's Just that traditional. Yeah. Traditional it doesn't mead. really have a fancy wow. name. I've had a tr- traditional mead. I want to sit and smell this before I, before I, yeah, you know, dive in. Cause take the nose is just crazy. Oh, I want, a, I want like air freshener that smells like this. This is just, <laughs> it smells like summer and wildflowers and like honey-ish. I mean, it's, I could just smell this. You could, you want to taste this when, when you die? I want to just have to smell this when I die. <laughs> yeah. So they say that um, this is one pound of blueberries mm. and half a pound of honey for every bottle. Say that again. Whoa. A pound of blueberries and half a pound of honey per bottle. That's nuts. They use orange blossom honey. This is delightful. Yeah. Orange blossom honey. Yeah. But it's way so, so for all of that concentrated flavor in in this bottle, I would never imagine it because it's very subtle. Like yeah. it's Yeah, even if you use honey in cooking often it can overpower the mm-hmm. dish. You it's the only thing you get. You can tell there's honey in here. But not that much honey. That's, oh, that's yeah. insane. Yeah, and it's so, exp- pretty expensive honey, too, this apparently. This is such a sensual experience. I mean, I'm telling you, man. You lift, the, <laughs> you lift the glass to your mouth, and you just... Your world gets lightened by the aroma, and then you taste it, and it's it's less than you think it, you're going to be getting, but it's just right. Yeah. This is It's really impossible ridiculous. to describe a good melomel to somebody who's not had one. I mean, it's it's like an after. This is a dessert wine. Oh, for to me. sure, for yeah, sure. Yeah. And this is fourteen percent, so it comes wow. in like a strong wine, basically. And it's so smooth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, oh. you have to be careful. This stuff. <laughs> I'm in love. <laughs> and this is a still mead, which means it's not carbonated, as you can see. Mm-hmm. It's just uh, kind of viscous and fluid. It would be interesting in if glass. this was carbonated. So there are like there are car- there though. are carbonated meads, and yeah, um, I don't prefer them, but I've had some pretty good ones. So. Oh. Someday I'm gonna make. Someday I'm gonna make someday. that highlight reel of all of Randy's reaction noises, just back to back to back. <laughs> That'll I'll make be it. a, a I'll special. It. I'll decide this is a bad idea, and I will not save it. Special <laughs> Patreon release. Yeah. Randy going mm, for an hour. <laughs> I don't care what you say. This is that meat exists because God loves us. I mean, for sure, dude. For sure. Gosh. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, you're. Uh, when it's my birthday, do I get a bottle of that? Um, <laughs> you get I, can, I can eat something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I can find something. I have no joke. Probably fifty bottles of meat. <laughs> so uh, for real. <laughs> yeah. My goodness. It's a little bit of a problem. All right. So you're very overstated. I would prefer this to any whiskey, any bourbon. A good yeah. meat. I I don't know if I totally agree, but now, <laughs> yeah. now what you said isn't ridiculous to me. Yeah, so, good. Yeah, good. thanks and for I, sharing yeah, this. Yeah, and this is, I mean, this is good. And this is, I think, the mead that put them on the map. Yeah. Um, that was their most popular to begin with. And they have a bunch of versions of it, like uh, Breakfast Elliot, which has, like, coffee in it. And I've got a chocolate mm-hmm. one at home, so it's, like, chocolate and blue. I don't want that. But, like, on the level of meads that I've had, this is pretty middle of the road. So, All right. <laughs> so I mean, I, I, don't, I don't want to enter into your binary world of having to, like, 
compete against whiskeys and beers and wines. This is just pure yeah. delight in a cup. And a lot I mean, of maids are aged in like really nice whiskey barrels and stuff too. Yeah. So. We've already talked about it way too long, so let's uh, finish up the tasting to say, if you find a mead, buy it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cheers. Right. cheers. Yeah, cheers. Well, Samir and Sherrod Yadav, thanks so much for being on A Pastor and Philosopher Walking to a Bar. Thanks, man. Yeah, yeah. Thanks. Great. Thanks for having us. Awesome. Can both of you tell us just a little bit about your background or who you are? Why you're why are you on the show? Other than That's that, I begged you. Good question. I was going to say, <laughs> why, why are we on the show? Yeah, what are we doing? My press agent said this would be good for my, uh, for, I mean, I, I gave you guys all the headshots. I hope you got them. Uh, but no, we, I think it's, uh, finding out about your show is pretty cool because it's sort of, the title of it is like the description of our relationship. Mm-hmm. So, uh, <laughs> exactly. so it's kind of cool. Yeah, so Samir and I, we obviously sucked nutrients from the same placenta growing up. <laughs> and uh, we were, uh, yeah, yeah, you know, identical twins, monozygotic, so same DNA, same infirmities, same devastating good looks. <laughs> and um, I think the, the conversion experience that I had in college is kind of where all this started. And then shortly after my conversion experience, uh, Samir sort of said, I guess I'll walk in here and take a look around. And he, he and I both in different ways, I think, have been trying to prosecute what it means to be a Christian or why we think it would, that would be something we would want to do as our career choices. So that's the sphere in which we work out our anxieties and our own questions about whether any of this stuff makes any sense. And so Samir Samir went the academic route and I went the pastoral route. And yeah, and we took a little detour into a uh, testicle crushing fundamentalism. Uh, (laughs) So anyway, but yeah, we, we each got up. one left. I guess. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> being, being twins, we can also be donors for each other, so that's pretty. Yeah. Cool. It worked so, out. It worked out. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, my you know one one kind of feature of that story is that my parents immigrated to the United States from from India, and so and then moved to Kansas and from Kansas to Idaho, and then we were born and raised in rural Idaho, and so our our uh, upbringing was one marked by a sort of profound questions of belonging and mm-hmm. and uh, sort of existential issues and, and struggle that raised religious questions. I think both of us were unusually re- um, contemplative, reflective types for just in part re- in response to the pressures of, of the kind of environment in which we were growing up. And so um, a lot of working out of various questions about what is life in the world and all of everything about were were shaped in a very particular kind of social context, you know, in which it's easier to ask those questions when thing when pieces don't fit properly. Yeah. So so I think that that's something that we've continued in our own different ways to reflect on and has shaped our respective vocations in perhaps different ways, but also overlapping ways that that we continue yeah. to work out in our relationship over time. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I would love for you to take us into that a little bit, if you're willing to. I mean, you said it, Sherrod, you're, you're a pastor. <laughs> Samir, you're a, 
I'm going to say philosopher, even though I think your degree is technically in theology, but you wrote your dissertation on... I'm, I'm a trained on, theologian who does some philosophy of religion and philosophy Sure, yeah, anybody that wrote a dissertation on William Alston is a philosopher, in my, in my, in my opinion, so... Um, and Jean-Luc Marion. Yeah, yeah. There, there you go, yeah. and you cite a bunch of philosophers. Yeah, and like, I think philosophers. He, Wilfred Sellers is in his marriage vows someplace, so... <laughs> he's, he's definitely a philosopher, so yeah, ask wife yeah. and family what they have to deal with. Yeah. Nice, so, yeah. nice. So... Um, have there been areas where Samir, where Sherrod's pastoral gifting or vocation has actually informed your scholarship? Same thing in the other direction. What, what, take us yeah. into your conversations a little bit, if you, if you can. I, I would say that I thought about this a little bit in anticipation of, of our conversation, and it's such a difficult question to answer because I don't think of the way in which Sherrod's ministry and uh, pastoral vocation informs my work as being a, a really discrete kind of thing. It's much more like the kind of work he does is informed by his own attempting to take seriously his Christian confession and to help others to think about what it might mean to take that seriously and to be part of that discernment together in a way that has practical stakes so that one is invested in the answer to that question in the way that one prosecutes the everyday features of one's life. And I think that that kind of vocation is, is one that overlaps substantially with my own. So I think that one dimension to attempting to, to take one's Christian confession seriously and to help others to venture, to make a venture as to what that might look like in their lives, one, one dimension of that is, is intellectual and educative. So there's a natural connection to the kind of work that I do as a theologian. I mean, to be a theologian is just to have a vested interest in the truth of the subject matter that you're, that you're investigating. In this case, questions about God's relationship to the world and stuff like that. And so, yeah, there, there are those questions get manifest differently in this context, but it's in, in the context of doing academic work or whatever. But there's a sense in which teaching students is a form of is a kind of spiritual formation by way of uh, contemplation. And I think that there's something about that work that is deeply resonant with the pastoral work and, the, and the, particularly the kind of pastoral work that my brother does. So, so I think that, but let me put it this way, though. One's practical vested interests in the questions one, one asks as, a, as an academic sometimes have to be backgrounded rather than foregrounded. Right? They're not like what you're actually investigating. They're just kind of a program running in the background. Whereas it's front and center for what Sherrod does. And so when we talk, it, it has the ability to be a front and center conversation that is exp explicit. Like, why does this actually matter? How does this actually work? And those kinds of questions. And so that's the kind of stuff we talk about. Yeah, I think that's, I like the background foreground kind of thing. Because I think that that works pretty well as an analogy to how Samir works for me too. I mean, you know, what he's describing, I think, is it's like all of the work that that Samir does in theology and race and in apophaticism and mysticism and, and concepts of wonder and all this work he does is deeply existentially motivated. You know, it's like, it's, it's rooted not just in who he is, but in, he's not just doing conceptual analysis as a kind of like gymnastic fun, mm -hmm. you know, it's, he's got real stakes in the questions that he's trying to to come at and he takes them pretty seriously and i think it, maybe our relationship uh, connects with each other over those existential concerns over because neither one of us want to believe bullshit you know <laughs> and i think 
his scholarly work then sort of like is standing in the background of my, I kind of think about like the, the album cover of In Fear of a Black Planet, you know, like that public anime album where the guys are just standing in the background with their sunglasses on. And that, <laughs> so every time I am preaching or teaching or counseling, I've got, I've got Samir in <laughs> standing in the background guarding the door as a kind of, is what I am saying, does it really make any sense? Is mm-hmm, it mm-hmm. in good conscience something that I can commend to somebody and not be a kind of used car salesman, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And I think Samir is wanting to not be just a kind of academic fraud, really, you know? Like somebody who's engaging this work for whatever the vicious reasons might be for that, to build a name or a career or just to publish for right. his own self-satisfaction. I mean, there's deeper things at stake, and I think we both help shape the way we come at it with people. Yeah, so. or to dis- descend into mere puzzle solving, you know, like where right. you're just mm-hmm. sort of like, oh, here's some something that you can kind of fiddle with and and work a thing so that you can crank an article out of it or something. I mean, that's right. not, I'm just not interested in that. Yeah. And, and one of the, but I, to say I'm not interested, it doesn't mean I'm not tempted to that, but part of the, part of the anchoring of uh, our relationship is to keep, keep a kind of focus on, on the work that religious questions actually do. You know, like what work gets done by asking and answering these questions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is that how it works for you guys? I mean, do you have a similar dynamic with both of you? Well, we didn't grow. We didn't share a womb, so a <laughs> little, yeah. little bit different. Yeah. yeah, I mean, Randy's my pastor, so uh, we just had a bunch of conversations for several years about intellectual and theological things, and then we started doing these Q and As at our church, where I would MC and then kind of help out with some of the more academic questions. And we realized we had a nice dynamic, and people told us we should have a podcast. So here we are. Right <laughs> it's, it's, right really, it's really you don't not have that to complicated. Do everything everyone said. <laughs> no, that's fair. Then, no, then we realized we. Could talk to people like you by just asking so yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it pays for itself for but sure I, I would yeah. say that um kyle's influence has definitely in some some you know whether they're small or large ways influenced my the way i teach and preach particularly bringing like this idea of epistemic humility is something that i wasn't in my orb until kyle came into my world and hopefully i had some innately in there but mm-hmm. um, he's helped me pay attention a lot more to it. Mm-hmm. And also this idea of certainty. There's a number of things that Kyle and his philosophical questions and mm-hmm. just dealing with what's real has mm-hmm. really, really shaped and influenced and helped me like look at things differently and also make sure that I'm not talking bullshit, like you said. Mm-hmm. Yeah, awesome. yeah, right on. Yeah, that's really cool. I think that's the gift of it is that there's a kind of, I have a form of accountability with Samir that I don't have with anybody else. Yeah. You know? Likewise. You know, one of the things, I recently, not terribly recently, but there was like this, this theological journal, online journal called Syndicate, and one of the things that they did was to do a kind of study of the state of theological academy, mm. contemporary state of the academy, and, and, and some of the problems that, that have arisen in relationship to certain different kinds of confessional schools where theology gets done. And one of the perennial things that, that comes up in, in conversations about theological work is the divide between church and academy, you know, so that you have academic theologians, and then you have like actual... Christian constituents, you know, and constituencies, and that the never the twain shall meet, you know, except mm-hmm. except if if you have constituencies who are putting a drag on confessional institutions to limit academic freedom in ways that are problematic for those people, or you have, on the other hand, you have a despising of the church by the by mm-hmm. the um, the theologian as some kind of lowbrow sphere of people who don't know what they're talking about or doing. And so it's really the kind of sense of mutual responsibility to one another in terms of academic yeah. theology and the life of the church 
is voluntary. Yeah. It's kind of voluntary, but, but there's a sense in which my relationship to my brother is involuntary. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. And so there's a kind of there's a kind of accountability in that. That is something that that I think would be great if it were it could be propagated more widely. You know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've mentioned several times on the show that I have a text thread that with a couple other philosophers that we've had going for probably five or six years, and it's it's something similar to that. Like. I tell my students that philosophy gives you a superpower of bullshit detection. Yeah, uh, exactly. And see through anything, yeah. but like, it's nice when it's invited. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> and to to exactly. know that someone's gonna yeah. call it. Like, I'm, you know, I'm probably I might get a text after this episode from one of those dudes <laughs> telling me that thing you said was really stupid. Yeah, um, my, my detector was going crazy when I yeah. Like <laughs> yeah. they listen to this. Exactly. Actually, they yeah. do, which kind of scares me. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah. So don't scare me. I've, Hi guys. <laughs> <laughs> I've um, I feel like I've been in your heads for the last week. I've been reading your articles, Samir. I've been listening to a bunch of your uh, sermons, Sherrod. Oh my lord! Yeah, sorry, yeah, just God. to kind of prepare to know so what sorts of questions to ask. So I've got a few that I want to touch. Things that you've written on Samir and things that you've said, Sherrod. And I'd love to get your take on both of them, even if it's not something you yourself said. So, so one kind of big question that I want to ask you, Samir, is, and it's as general as I can make it. What is theology? <laughs> so, so you wrote a paper uh, where you're kind of giving what you call a meta-meta dogmatics. So you don't have to go into all yeah. that. But like, uh, sure. just very basically for listeners who haven't really thought about it. Here, here, let me frame it this way. Yeah. There are people who call themselves theologians who are Catholic, Protestant, Jewish, Muslim, feminist, womanist, liberation theologians, analytic theologians, postmodernists, even atheists. Okay, We had a famous sure. atheistic theologian at, at my alma mater. So uh, what is it that all those people are doing that is the same thing, <laughs> if, yeah. if, there, if there is such a thing? And then the second yeah. part to the question is, how is that thing different from what philosophers do? Because I know you're very informed on the philosophical methods yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, I mean, the, I don't think that this is actually that difficult a question, which, which is a good sign that I probably got it wrong. Um, <laughs> but, but, but um, I mean, I just looked it up on Wikipedia and it said <laughs> right there, Webster's defines theology. Yes. Uh, um, no, that sounds like a pastor. No. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, well, in the shit, it's Saturday. <laughs> what, I, what I tell my, um, my intro to Christian doctrine students, you know, that I teach every t- two sections every semester, and when I, that's how I start the class, is talking about what is theology. And what I say is, all it is to do theology is to ask what must or might be the case if some story is correct. Uh, a particular story about, in, in the case of Christian theology, it's a story about God's relationship to the world and, and a story of creation and redemption and that kind of thing. Other kind of theologies are theologies about God, so theology can only be done by asking what must or might be the case if some story about God is correct, right? But then it's just working out some kind of ontological commitments or like what are you committed to in virtue of, of some said story. Mm-hmm. And, and that's something that anyone who has a story about God can do, mm-hmm. right? So anybody who has a story about God and, and what we might have to do with God or what we don't have to do with God or whether the concept of God commits you to the existence of God or not or whatever, anybody can, can try to work out the implications of what must or might be the case if that story is correct. And that's all it is to do theology, is to, mm-hmm. is to think hard about that. And theology is therefore something that is about ontological commitment, but depending on one story about God, it, it might also involve certain kinds of other kinds of commitments, practical commitments, you know? What must uh, or might I 
have to do if this story is correct. So there's there's other kinds of commitments other than the ontological ones, but those mm -hmm. ones are, tend to be the centering questions in mm -hmm. in the work of theology. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Didn't you say a few minutes ago, though, that to be a theologian is to have some kind of practical investment in the questions that you're studying? It is. It is. To be a Christian theologian is to do that. Right. To be a Christian theologian. But I don't presume to say what the but you want you, you want me to answer the question. What is theology in, in the most generic across the board sense? That might mm -hmm. be true. And I don't think that practical investments are a given for any every kind of theology. I can right. I can imagine certain kinds of theology in which the practical question is of little or no consequence at all. I don't, I wouldn't yeah. now given my commitments about what theology is, I might say that's bad theology, but I wouldn't say it's not theology at all mm -hmm. that it doesn't count as theology. Sure. And so yeah. the, the the second part of that question, sorry about the philosophy, how does it relate to philosophy? I mean, philosophy can help us work at the the notions of ontological commitment involved. It can help us with the inferential work that that might be Involved, it can be a way of helping us to understand what the credences and epistemic status is of the inferential work we're doing and trying to do that work. Right? It can. There's there's all kinds of ways in which philosophy is useful for that task. But one can imagine doing philosophical work where what one is trying to do is not necessarily that task of trying to say what must or might be the case that some story about God is right. Mm -hmm. So so that so there can be a distinction therefore between philosophy and theology and. And I mean, there's some version of this kind of this kind of way of making the distinction is I think what you find in Aquinas. Mm -hmm. So I think there is a legitimate kind of philosophy theology distinction, but it's not a, a mutual exclusivity kind of thing because obviously, doing the work of theology kind of propels you into doing philosophical kind of things, reasoning, for example, yeah. right? So yeah, and that that commitment to a story that you begin with, trying to work out the coherence of that of those commitments inside some story is itself even a kind of approach to theology, a kind of post-liberal approach to theology. And I think you could even step back and say, just in the most generic, probably unhelpful sense, I guess, but theology is just, it's the discipline of trying not to say dumb things about God, you know? <laughs> it's like, you know, how do we talk about this, you know, whatever it is you mean by it, what, how do we talk about God? And so you can see why theology would be super important for ministers. I mean, it's like that's their job. They have to talk about God all the time. And so theologians are working out in different maybe narrative contexts, different uh, amongst different communities, how to make sense of their own community's claims about those things, mm -hmm. um, how it works inside those communities. So you sort of just answered my next question to you, which is the version of the question I just asked Samir. Like, what, how do you understand the vocation of a pastor? And I'm particularly mm. interested in uh, some I've talked about with friends for a long time. What is, is there an expertise involved in pastoring? Yeah, and I so, love that question, So man, what because, is it? <laughs> um, because I think pastors, generally speaking, are hacks at other things that they should have probably done instead. <laughs> they are middle managers, they are mm -hmm. bureaucrats, they mm -hmm. are marketing people, they mm -hmm. are musicians, they are stand-up comedians, they are fill-in-the-blank. They That's probably what they should have done instead, but they just kind of try to hose the Jesus juice on whatever it is they, <laughs> they you know, whatever thing that, they, that floats their boat vocationally, which means that most pastors, I think, don't have a sense for what they do in any distinction from one of those other vocations. It's almost like we're all of those things. We're, we're bad therapists and theologians <laughs> and etc. Anyway, yeah. yeah, maybe some of my self-loathing is coming into that answer. But also, <laughs> uh, I think there is a historical definition of what a pastor is that actually is the only reason I'm interested in it. 
And that definition has to do with facilitating a person's union with God. So I, I think a pastor's vocation actually makes them mostly irrelevant to all of those other things. Other people are better at those things. Other people's jobs are to do those things. But what I want to do is to be the one person who has no agenda for your life, that's not trying to cram you into anything. And my job is to pay attention to you and to pay attention to the divine life inside of you and to help draw your own attention to the workings of God inside the shape of your life, however it's given. Oh, that's nice. So, and that work is not deeply sought after. <laughs> uh, not a lot of people are in line wanting that work. Most people sort of, I think, want a pastor to answer unanswerable questions, they want pastors to give vision and direction that takes the responsibility off of them to actually know what God is doing in their own life. They want pastors to, in some ways, take up the unique burdens and struggles that come, that attend Christian, Christian vocation, Christian belonging, and sort of chew that food for people and then mm-hmm. spit, it, spit it back into their, into their mouths. Or these days, just affirm what all the cable news tells right. them to think, right? Exactly. Like firm everything that they yeah. believe right already. Right. So that I, I stated it in a very highly individualistic sense that this, this contemplative work of spiritual direction, prayer, and attending to the voice of God inside of people's lives. But also there's a communal work to it, which is that the, the, the job of the people of God together is to provide some kind of corporate witness to the life of God in the world today. So what, just like a theologian's job is intellectually to say, how is this story coherent? What ontological commitments would I have to make in order for this story to believe this story? A, a church is a living community that says, what would this community have to be like if any of That's this right. story was true? You know, what, what, what would the shape of our relationships be? What would the shape of our financial commitments be? Mm-hmm. What would the shape of our emotional and imaginative lives, our vocations, all of that is wrapped up in inhabiting this story of God's redemption in Christ. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the scary things about being Christian and supposing that Christianity is correct. It's that one of its truth conditions or a satisfaction condition or the condition for the possibility of truth of Christianity is that a certain kind of community exists or or can exist. Mm -hmm. And if it can't or doesn't, then Christianity is false. It's false. That's right. So what bears so if that, the way, but, but if that's yeah. right, but if that's right, yeah. then it's a natural joint between the work of theology and the work, yeah. work of pastoral ministry, right? Exactly. Because yeah. because of the attempt to figure out what are the yeah. truth conditions. And that that's why I think Samir works for me. Uh, uh, <laughs> Samir is uh, just an aide in my on my cabinet. I feel like you know the fact is all of the truth conditions of Christian belief rest on some living, breathing, incarnate community Mm -hmm. that says, look what sort of life is possible because there is a God and he is like the crucified Jesus, you know? Yep. Uh, I want to get your name right. Sherrod, Sherrod, how do we... Uh, Well, let's, what we're going to have to do is conference call my mom. So you guys, (laughs) hold on. Yeah, hold on. No, so I I say Sherrod. I've said Sherrod since kindergarten because that's what other kids say. And uh, they must be right. So, uh, (laughs) so, but my name is actually pronounced Sherrod. Shut up. Uh-huh. And m- not even my wife will do it. I mean, so I have, 
when I'm dead someday, uh, which is the other job of a pastor, to focus everyone on the day of their own death, <laughs> it's going to be really amazing to have people come through the mic and speak tearfully about me and say my name wrong. Like, everyone will say my <laughs> Every name time. wrong. I, I refuse to do it, though. Sherad Mansoma to me. Wait, who is that? Yeah. Anyway. Nice. Sherrod, could you tell us, just tell us about your church? Oh, sure. Yeah. So this is a small, what was a non-denominational community that was planted about 10 years ago by a group of independent Bible church type folks from Arkansas. They came into Portland to save all the sodomites. <laughs> and, um, and they, they, so they, uh, they, um, they planted this church that was really a, a pretty beautiful little collection of intentional communities. So they didn't even meet on Sunday mornings, really. They just had a kind of network of intentional communities that would reach out to. They moved to the poorest neighborhoods in the, in the city, and they did really good work inviting people into their homes, into their lives. They, you know, the problem was that the the burden on these home church leaders, which were you know mostly lay folks, was enormous. It was just so much work that it was just not sustainable. And then housing prices in Portland will get your ass kicked out of a neighborhood pretty quick. So, you know, you'll you'll get priced out through rent increases and things like that. So having a church organized around these communities proved to be pretty difficult. So it was pretty tumultuous, pretty emotionally draining. The main teaching pastor stepped out around eight years ago, just totally burned out. And I was in a church in Idaho that I had planted as a personal therapy group for myself. <laughs> and this church was doing fine. We had a handful of people that said, hey, uh, as long as you want to make this thing work, we will pay your salary. So so it, it was a sweet little time for me to recover from the 12 years of Bible church earth. craziness, yeah, that I had in this fundamentalist environment. Hmm. And in that little halfway house of safety and respite, I kind of felt like, oh, I think I'm, I'm probably ready to go do something new again. So I moved to Portland. I'd heard about this church from Friends of Friends kind of a thing. They were in some of the same networks. And uh, so, yeah, I said, here's all my baggage. Here's all my doubts. Here's all my convictions that differ from yours, and here's why you probably shouldn't hire me. And then they said, uh, we could probably live with that. And then they, they took me on. So yeah, right now we, we've just made a move to the Evangelical Covenant Church as a denomination. So I've been moving away from a kind of conservative evangelicalism, Bible church kind of environment hmm. towards a more, I think, broad embrace of the Christian tradition. And so the ECC was founded as a denomination that said a credible conversion is all we need for membership, and that's it. No doctrinal gauntlet to run, that's it. And so, so it tries to embrace lots of different convictions in one, in one family. So we're trying to live that out with five or so other uh, covenant churches in Portland. And yeah, I mean, it's a mostly white church, so that's just like I grew up and just like I went to school. And, uh, just you know, like you'll die. And just like I'll die. <laughs> no, it's I. It's sad in some ways. I, uh, I after George Floyd died, I've been wrestling pretty deeply with how much racial trauma Samir and I have both experienced growing up, and uh, what it's like to be in a in a white evangelical church ministering. So the beautiful thing about this denomination is that they have a very 
wonderful multi-ethnic ministry in the nation. I mean, they ha- they're one of the most diverse churches in the country, even though they're a smaller denomination. And my mm. coaches and supervisors, they're all Chinese, Korean. We have a, a lot of influential black pastors in our network. And Yeah, the ECC is great, great denomination. I, w- I want to ask both of you, because I don't know about you, Sherrod, but I've been doing a lot of like big emotional, emotive thinking about the church these days Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. what we see in the church, what we see going on. It's Mm -hmm. crazy. It's like the Wild West in the church in America. And churches are like basically cut in half of what they were pre-COVID in many ways. And people aren't interested in the church or people who are interested in the church are the crazies. There's, you know, there's there's just (laughs) so much going on right now. As you look at the landscape of the American church right now, Tell us your thoughts, what you think about, what you pray about, what you, you know, keeps you up at night or not. Well, fundamentally, man, what keeps me up at night is whether, whether Christianity has anything to offer. That's what keeps me up at night. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, it's the most fundamental questions. And when I look at the American landscape of religion and spirituality, you know, I see lots of hopeful things. You know, I ministered among a lot of a lot of younger folks. Port- Portland's not quite what Portlandia and the whole, you know, where 20-year-olds go to retire kind of thing, that, uh, <laughs> the reputation it kind of gained. But, it's, but it is, it is a lot of. of young folks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's kind of like that. And what's amazing is that the phenomena of deconstruction and de-churching that people are going through is largely, uh, kind of ironically, out of a desire to preserve elements of the of the vision of Mm -hmm. Jesus that says, if it's between that and my religion, then kind of fuck my religion. I'm done. I'm, I'm, Mm -hmm. I'm, you know, and, uh, and the hopefulness of that is that those folks, they take their neighbors pretty seriously, you know, and they don't view their neighbors as a vehicle to getting to God or in chalking up their, their neighbors or their, or conversions as a kind of like the work of the church, they, they have a much broader type of fundamental commitment to justice in the world. And I think those things are actually very, very hopeful. But the problem is, of course, that the work of the church is to organize our lives around not just that work, but our commitments to each other. And that's where it's so scary and difficult. I mean, you know, as you're a pastor, like you're making calls about masks and when and how we can gather. And you have half the people saying, bro, it's fear. It's fear. What about faith? And then you have other people saying, you know, like, I th- I'll see it in 20 years. Like we're living in the Mad Max Thunderdome and I probably <laughs> will be piecing out of church for a long time because it's just too dangerous. And you're supposed to navigate these realities. And, and I have lots of, you know, younger folks in our church whose parents are very, very conservative and they are not, you know? Mm-hmm. And so this line that runs down the middle of churches and the middle of families that are dividing people against each other. And I think our work is to figure out how to love your enemy without abandoning the most vulnerable. Mm-hmm. That's, the, that's the work. Mm-hmm. Churches are, man, they're right in the middle of it because we're supposed to be constantly with one eye on the most vulnerable in our communities, drawing together these folks who really don't trust or like each other very much. And so I think forgiveness is the biggest, most practical 
and powerful work of the church in this era. It's mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. we have to minister forgiveness, mm-hmm. uh, forgiveness of sins. Mm-hmm. And that starts with each other. Mm-hmm. And I know it sounds super Pollyanna, but it's like we're supposed to be the one place in a person's life that they're going to sit with the, the with such radical difference that the only thing that brings them together is Jesus. Mm-hmm. So I love seeing the ways in which that's true in my church. And I, I cry and I stay up at night thinking about all the ways it's not. Yeah. You know? Samir, any thoughts? My experience with, is, uh, with students is, is very much echoes what, what Sherrod's saying about what is driving people away from church and what is hopeful about even some of the exodus is, a, is what's hopeful about it is, is reform or, mm-hmm. or some kind yeah. of reconstru- reconstruction of Christianity and what, it, what it's about, most basically about that that I think we should have some hope in. But I also think that, I mean, I guess, who was it with sociology? It was like Robert Withnow, maybe, who, who talks about American religion as really uniquely indexed to yeah. political affiliation mm-hmm. and such that you have a more strong predictor of unity and disunity across political rather than religious lines. Mm-hmm. Even, even than racial lines. Uh-huh. Even the racial lines, yeah. 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 Right, exactly. So it's in a lot of ways a unique kind of situation in America, the American church. But it's also in a lot of ways a hangover from a kind of past that we're not really willing to confront. Yeah. What keeps me up at night is just the thing we were talking about earlier, about whether the truth of Christianity can be sustained by the existence of communities that show that it actually isn't just BS, you know? Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. And all it takes in order to to be despairing about that is proximity to the to, to, to Christians. <laughs> uh, yeah. And, and so and so the kind of hard work that I think Sherrod's talking about, the hard work of forgiveness, the hard work of reconciliation, that it's like when I when I think about reconciliation and forgiveness and a reparation, which I think has to be part of when we are talking yeah. about when we talk about reconciliation. Amen, amen. When we're talking about all that kind of work, it's like some people hear that and they hear what like what what Sherrod described as kind of Pollyannish kind of like oh sentiment sentimentality of kind of whatever. I hear those words and I think of like dismantling a, a nuclear weapon. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Exactly. Like the, the, the oh, shaking yeah. hands, the plutonium. You know, not wanting something to explode. Wow. You know what I mean? Uh, um, exactly. Because because the work of interpersonal relationship when it's sort of ramified by the the kind of context of of polarization and so on. That work is something that is so, there's so much incentive that runs the other way to give up on it and just mm-hmm. to draw up the battle lines and say, mm-hmm. no, you know, because I think one of the things that the need for mutual forgiveness, recovery, mutual submission to the to the way of Jesus, you know, mm-hmm. the mutual discernment about the way of Jesus, you know, mm-hmm. that work is so threatened by the both sidesism, by the kind of like, yeah. okay, so now let's come together and then here's okay. why we have to acknowledge your viewpoint and my viewpoint and they both have to be preserved so that so that our fundamental sense of security in our own views can be preserved in order to as a precondition right. for for this discernment right. um, or, or 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 conciliation or whatever it is which is um, which is why I think it's so important to talk about the a minimal constraint of attention to those most vulnerable that's exactly right that's the barometer for uh, not this is not a kind of washed out libertarian I mean Jesus is not a moderate 
the Sermon no on the way. Mount is not moderate. So you, right. you know, the, the idea of bringing together conservatives and liberals in some unified family together is not a kind of live and let live compromise. It's a, it's a mutual call to a deep repentance th- mm-hmm. that actually rejects mm-hmm. much of their shared project together in a vision as catastrophically beautiful as the Sermon on the Mount. Man. Yeah. Man, you guys are dropping gold right here. I mean, this idea of that work, that hard work of unity in the church, not being some Pollyanna BS, but it's actually like fear and trembling and shaking hands. And it's almost like it's not even just any bomb. It's a time bomb. It feels like it's about to explode, right? So you got to do it quick and you got to do it really carefully. And then this, this idea of Jesus isn't just asking us to all be moderates politically. Jesus is asking us to put all that BS to the wayside exactly. and unite yeah. under the mission and the way of Christ. I mean, yeah. Yeah. we just sol- we just solved all the church's problems right there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then the trick is you know doing it, and, exactly, and that's yeah. why you know like I love that. Uh, it's funny. I, I I was just scrolling through the show notes, and it's, I saw that you had that quote from a, a Facebook post, and I actually didn't know I said any of that. I because I, I I didn't really I was skimming, and then I saw that quote, and I was like, man, that is that's fucking that guy, awesome. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> is dead on and then i saw that i said it and i was like oh so yeah yeah, i but but it's i think the the call to come and die and the call to sort of take our own the words that we we say on a sunday morning even when we do our routine confession of sin together for what we've done and what we've left undone all of the kind of routine stuff that has such vapid content in our minds, you know, yeah. like what you just said, it's harrowing work. It's like, it's a lot less like a group therapy session and a lot more like South Africa circa 96, you know, wow. truth and yeah. reconciliation. Mm-hmm. And that, that work is, it's just, it's, you've got to be willing to have a lot of your life upset by it, mm-hmm. you know? So, and that's why I think the Kierkegaard connection with you guys, that, that's why I vibe with him so much because yeah. his way of talking about Christianity will not let us off the hook mm-hmm. for that stuff, you know? Mm-hmm. Right. And it's part, I mean, one of the things that I was going to say, actually, it's a very nice connection to that, which is like the Kierkegaardian kind of anti-Hegelianism. Yeah. And, and one, one dimension of that is this kind of idea that uh, you can go with the grain of the social and... Uh, moral and cultural context and zeitgeist in order to in order to enact this that it and so the the profound ways in which very determinative features of our lives that are not that that, you know have whether it's neoliberal economic policies or Mm. whatever it is might have to be really basically and fundamentally challenged just by a certain kind of form of life which means it it can't be sentimental because Mm -hmm. it's kind of damned yeah, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, the, mm-hmm. there's no way to enact something like this without e- expecting failure. Failure in any sense of yeah. uh, mm-hmm. sort of the ability to go on, the kind of ability to sort of make your way and to kind of make peace with the ordinary course of life as yeah. it is handed to you. Mm-hmm. And that's what's so challenging to me is that one of the distinctions between a kind of Protestant way of embodying some recognition of this and a, the Roman Catholic way in the Western tradition is is to think about, in, at least in the, uh, in the Roman Catholic context, there has always been an acknowledgement of, of what Charles Taylor would call different speeds. You know, mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. that is to say, the monastic community bears the work of, uh, yeah. monastic communities can bear the work of doing this in a certain way, in a sense, on behalf of a wider community, 
And as a part of a, a project that is a realized eschatology that's doing battle for the sake of the kingdom with powers and principalities and so on, that simply cannot be realized by everyone. Because yeah. it's just not, does, and they're just, not expected to do it. And they they're can't, not, so we shouldn't yeah. expect it. But exactly. the priest of all believers in a Protestant kind of vision attempts to radicalize and democratize a certain kind of vision, then the question becomes whether that also requires a weakening of the picture and a kind of collapsing back into something that can actually be enacted because it can go more easily with the way of things, you know? And, mm-hmm. and, so, um, and so that kind of tension of how do you enact something radical in the life of a Christian community that actually lifts up the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and reperforms it in the world faithfully is, is just, if it's, if it's a question that's not just a, a conceptual question or one that you're working out because you want to write a beautiful book that sells eight copies to other people <laughs> who work on that, those theological <laughs> questions, and then, and then you can put it on your CV and then, you know, like live a normal middle class or upper middle class life of the professoriate. If, you want, if, that's, if that's not what you want, but what you want to actually figure out how to do it and see if it's doable, and then if it's not, then give up on Christianity, and if it is, then have hope that God is in Christ is reconciling the world to himself, then you have to figure out how, how that performance is supposed and to work. That's, and that's, that's why, the kind of thing that keeps me up at night. Mm-hmm. That's why you go to church, Samir. Mm-hmm. That's why you go to church. I mean, I know that's yeah. like, like there's a lot you have to swallow to do that, but the church lumbers towards that vision in a sort of drunken, wayward, they're lumbering <laughs> towards it. it but, but, and I think the role of a minister is, you know, kind of like Eugene Peterson in, in The Apocalyptic Pastor says that the job of a pastor is to ruin people's lives. And so you stand, you stand <laughs> in the back it. of the room Amen. and people leave and say, oh, that was a nice sermon. And you're shaking hands and you're like, I'm trying to ruin your life. I'm trying to ruin your life. I'm trying to ruin your life. Mm. And that, I think what that means is that pastors have, they have to have the vision from the, the eyes to see God enacting those realities inside the lives of their people and then call attention to when they see it yeah. happening. Yeah. They say, look at this brother who just gave his car away to this other brother who needed one. Or look at this brother uh, or sister who whose family, their house just burned down, they need a place to live. Like all these different all these different ways you see in, in not in macro scale socioeconomic upheaval, but inside the life of our community, disruptions of the normal course of yeah. of this neoliberal picture of happiness. There are disruptions that actually show that tear little windows into the world that yeah. you can look through those and say, This actually I'm seeing something transcendent the kingdom of God is near. And the yeah. kingdom of God is near. And yeah. and pastors draw attention to that stuff. So that because we're not going to see these things enacted in wholesale revolution. Yeah. Although I do have, I'm having whiskey with a guy in a couple of weeks who all of his Facebook posts are like, uh, like, so when are we going to burn these buildings down? I mean, he's like, <laughs> he's, and he's ah! like, because uh, he, we connected over the fact that we're both Christian anarchists. We both say that we're anarchists, but he's like, he's like ready to. So, you know, he's ready mm-hmm. to the, Dude, go for it. Sure, do not go burn these buildings down with this guy. Do not no, do no, that. No, no, I know. Don't don't do that. Especially with that beard, over. man. It's not going to go well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, it's an attractive picture, but, uh, but, but, uh, but, you know, he, I think you can get impatient with small scale change. My friend, Pastor John Lemon, says most of the time 
you want to experience the magnificence and majesty of God, it's going to be on such a minuscule scale that if you don't have eyes to see it, you because you're always looking for some yeah. sort of major eruption, yep. you know, it's kind of like Elijah in the cave, you know what I mean? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, sure. the God but of the there, mundane. Are, there are whispers of that stuff happening, mm-hmm. and that's, that'll, you know, that should keep us from killing ourselves, so... Friends, before we continue, we want to thank Story Hill BKC for their support. Story Hill BKC is a full menu restaurant and their food is seriously some of the best in Milwaukee. On top of that, Story Hill BKC is a full service liquor store featuring growlers of tap available to go, spirits, especially whiskeys and bourbons, thoughtfully curated regional craft beers, and 375 selections of wine. Visit storyhillbkc.com for menu and more info. If you're in Milwaukee, You'll thank yourself for visiting Story Hill BKC. And if you're not, remember to support local. One more time, that's storyhillbkc.com. One thing that you've written about, Samir, is uh, apophatic theology and the Mm -hmm. ineffability of God. And I'm curious to get your thoughts on this as well, Sherrod. How does... How does that fact, if we can call that a fact, that that God is, in a deep sense, unknowable, uh, how does that challenge or contextualize the stuff we've been talking about, about living this thing out. We're living it out for a thing that fundamentally is beyond our kin. So, and before you do that, Samir, just contextualize for our listeners what apophatic theology sure. means. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, I mean, I think we, we don't have to get super highfalutin here. I mm-hmm. mean, the, the fact is that um, apophaticism, at the, at the end of the day, is a way of recognizing that the object of our worship if you are worshiping God, then the object of, of worship is beyond all creatures and mm-hmm. beyond all finite capacity for comprehension. And guess what? We are a creature with finite capacities for <laughs> comprehension, mm-hmm. and therefore God must be beyond us, mm-hmm. right? And so it's the, the Augustinian line he says in a sermon, he says it really clearly. It's a see comprehendus, non est deus, right? If, yeah. if you can understand it, it ain't God, oof. right? Oof. Oof. That's right. Um, that's something I think that is so intuitively plausible. You know, it also reminds me of the Groucho Marx kind of line about about (laughs) not wanting to be a member of any club that would admit him, (laughs) right? Yeah. Yeah. Humans should not want to be a member of any club about God in which God remains comprehensible, can fit inside the club, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, like, Mm -hmm. that's, that's apophaticism. Apophatic just means to speak away from, and the idea of speaking away from is the idea of being able to speak in negative terms about God, that is to say, to mark one's relationship to God by distance, by, by the way in which God is at a remove from us. Mm-hmm. And then, so, now this leads to puzzles, like different kind of puzzles about language and stuff like that. How can we talk about something we can't talk about? Because, look, mm-hmm. I just talked about it, right? Mm-hmm. So, uh, when I say uh, you can't talk about God, then you should ask the question, you can't talk about who? Who did you just say? Yeah. Right? With like, words, what are we talking about um, right now? Yeah, 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 yeah. And there's always some smarmy analytic philosopher who's, who's, who's going to be saying that, and then you're going to want to slap them. But then you can't because you're a pacifist, and then you're going to be Oh, wait, oh, sorry. And that's why you walk into a bar with uh, your pastor. Correct. Yeah. So instead, I mean, Peter Van Ilswick is a, a philosopher of language who's done some really great work, interesting work. I think he's got an article that's going to be coming out on metalinguistic negation. What he means is to say, look, what we're trying to say when we talk in apophatic terms is, we're not trying to say that our language doesn't doesn't do anything with it's respect useless. to God, or yeah. that it doesn't can't express truths or stuff like that. It's that we're when we to be an apophaticist is to express a certain kind of reluctance towards your own speech. So it's yeah. metalinguistic. It's a way of stepping back towards your own and looking at your, the, your own speech and going, I guess mm. I don't know. 
I guess, mm-hmm. kind of, right? Um, mm-hmm. and, and because it's a, f- a form of recognition, a form of reluctance about the capacity of your language to accommodate mm-hmm. what it's about, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, and that's, I think that's like, that's a wildly relevant approach to the overconfident, technocratic, uh, American religious ways of talking about God. I mean, uh, you know, Kierkegaard is obviously all over this, and so is Pascal, and and the this sort of different existentialist strains within the Christian faith. But of course, maybe more most famously, Augustine is this has this attitude that says that God should not be instrumentalized. You know, he makes the uti frui distinction, and he's like, there are things to be enjoyed, and then there are things to be used, and our way of talking about God. If we don't want to instrumentalize him and turn him into a a weapon or a tool in our own hands, we have to constantly recognize that we do not grasp, we are grasped by God, Mm -hmm. you know? And so in my mind, the apophatic attitude, to use Samir's phrase, and the wonder requisite to Christian epistemology, that all of that is a way of affirming the most fundamental aspect of Christian conversion, which is that it's God that grasps us, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. not we that, that grasp him. Yep. And language is a huge part of the way we, we exercise categorical control over the world, you know? So when, when I think, you know, ministers particularly have to be very, very careful to consistently remind people through our liturgies the shape of them, the way we do them, and through the kinds of words we speak, that we are lunging desperately at realities way bigger than we can comprehend. Yeah. Uh, and what we're not doing is cataloging a creature in a jar, you know, when we talk about God. So I think, yeah. you know... What Willie, Je- what Willie Jennings calls, like, speaking from the commanding heights. You know? Yes, the command... Oh, what a cool phrase. Where eagles yeah. dare, how the misfits would yeah. put it. Um, yeah, but, right um, on. Um, yeah, which the course is, I ain't no goddamn son of a bitch. And I, uh, <laughs> I think that's, that's a, a good way of... Uh, yeah, it's a good, great way of avoiding the commanding heights is to recognize I, I have no conceptual spiritual, emotional capacity to bear something as fundamental as God in my language. That's right. And that, and you know, of course, that's what the experience of worship is. That's what wordless wonder is. You know, wonder is at its, at its apogee when we have nothing left to say, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. So, so yeah. It's got physiological sort of manifestation, right? The slack jaw, the wide eyes, the Right, exactly, Um, yeah. The yokel look on your face. (laughs) We're really going back to that sort of hick southern thing a lot here. uh, Sorry. uh, It's low-hanging fruit. Some of my best friends are from the south. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, So... Yeah. The other thing I'd want to say is like the, the inevitable thing about this, right? Is what about revelation? What about like aren't there truths that we know about God? Well, and, what about Jesus? And, and I think is the biggest. What question. about Jesus? Right. Oh man! But so here's the beautiful thing about Chalcedonian formulations of Jesus and about Trinitarian theology in general. Reach it. That the more you understand about these realities, the deeper your incomprehension goes. So right. mysteries mm-hmm. are not placeholders for knowledge we don't have. Yeah, That's yeah. not what a mystery is. A mystery is something that as you approach it and you grow in the understanding of a thing, it opens even wider fields of absolute incomprehension. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so Gregor of Nyssa calls it pectasy, right? The, the yeah, straining and stretching right. in which 
Yeah. So what I was gonna say though is that like um. So what about truth values of the of the claims we make about the Trinity and you know all this kind of stuff about the, about the incarnation and, and whatever and right. about no and how does knowability and unknowability kind of connect to mm -hmm. one another and I like this little paper of Bill Alston's called Two Cheers for Mystery. I don't know if you ever read that one. <laughs> Two Cheers for Mystery. I like the title. It's a good title and. I think he says, he just gives an analogy that I think is really apt, and uh, he, he says, look, you know, I explained to my, I don't remember how old he said his granddaughter, like three, five, four, five-year-old granddaughter, what I'm doing when I go to work, I might do that in a way that I have to accommodate my explanation to the limits of her comprehension, and so I have to be able to say something within terms that mm -hmm. are graspable for her because I'm trying to, to express something mm -hmm. that I know can only be expressed and received if it's accommodated, right? Right. And so the accommodation is like, okay, so, hey, you know how you color with crayons on your, on your, I mean, and I extend the analogy in a little way, but he's like, you know, you know how you color on crayons and uh, on your paper, and then when we really like it, you know, if it doesn't suck, we put it on the refrigerator. <laughs> like, this is like a really meritocracy kind of a... Which, uh, <laughs> I don't cry while you're explaining yeah, it. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> this yeah. Well, that's kind of what I do. You know, I go to work, and I, and I write, I, 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 think of, uh, I think of arguments and whatever, and I write them down, and, I, and then peer review and publication really is just, they, they get put on the refrigerator or whatever, right? <laughs> so the, the basic idea is he says, well, look, it's, it's not the case that... Um, that she doesn't know anything, I, that she hasn't been sufficiently informed. It has truth values and, you know, and, and whatever. But she can't stand back and see how the analogy works in order to see what the correlations are, right? Because she only has one half of it. She only has her standpoint. Right. And if that's what we're saying about whatever, about, you know, and Calvin says this, this is what, this yeah, is very traditional. Standard. It's, it's yeah. standard to say, to say God stoops, you know, to reveal. And even, even God's self-revelation in Christ in the incarnation is a veiling of God through yeah. the manifestation of, uh, of the humanity of Jesus. God comes through the humanity of Jesus. And so that, that's a kind of veiling of God in, through manifestation, right? And, right. Um, and a, a kind of ultimate accommodation to us and for right. us. And so so the, veiling, the veiling is also the revealing. Right. It's like the veiling is the revealing, and the stymieing wonder of that indescribable union of God and man in Jesus is the most profound and direct knowledge we can have of God. This incomprehension is actually what is the only pathway to any comprehension. You know hmm. what I mean? Hmm. So that's kind of the, I think, the, the relationship between mystery and knowledge. Yeah. You know, the other thing I'll say about this is that oftentimes in these contexts, the talk about the, the relevant kind of ignorance involved, the relevant kind of mystery involved, because in, in, the, in philosophy of religion context, this, this talk often happens around the metaphysics and epistemology questions and the questions about the semantic content of propositions and stuff like that. It, it, it often gets separated from the question of appreciation. So there's a certain way in which mystery is a normative concept. It's something that is to be appreciated as a mystery. So it's not just a, right. a knowledge gap or an information mm -hmm. gap or something like that. That's what that's the kind of the, the way in which like what Sherb was talking about earlier. And so that's the sense in which mystery, the kind of mystery involved is what, is what leads people who think and reflect on it, theologians who have reflected on it, to to want to put right. the modifier in right. to call it like a holy mystery, you know, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because it's a yeah. kind of something that's supposed to generate. Its own sense of sacredness or separateness. 
you can't just be like, oh, that's interesting. I mean, it's arrest. It's arresting. Yeah. It's arresting. Yeah, exactly. it actually, it's not curiosity. It grabs your yeah. face and yeah. pulls it in. In fact, I think one of the most animating convictions in my own vocation is the deep belief that human beings are inexhaustible wells of mysterious glory and goodness. I mean, mm-hmm, if mm-hmm. you are, that's why, you know, in characterizing what a pastor does, saying that it's about paying attention means that you, if you are not arrested by the glory resident in other human beings, however you find them, you can't mm-hmm. do this work, you know? Yeah. No yep. matter who they are, yep. you know, and you can name test cases mm-hmm. of people who are particularly difficult to do that with, but it's not sanctimonious or saccharine to say that in that person is depths of profound wonder that if only they knew, you know, they probably wouldn't be such an asshole. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's what Howard Thurman calls the uh, altar yeah. in every yeah. human, in yeah. every heart. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah every the way heart. of the heart. That's in the way yeah. of the heart. Yeah. 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 And I think if there is any uniqueness or expertise to pastoral work, and if that does have something to do with drawing attention to the presence of God and drawing people into union with God, that means not creating spaces and experiences and language that's all separate from the daily course of a person's life. Mm -hmm. It means recognizing all the stuff of being alive is an encounter with God. Mm-hmm. And that's what I that's what I like about the democratizing aspect of Protestant thinking is yeah. that it says that is everybody's spiritual vitality. It's in their ability to perceive the presence, activity, beauty, power, sustenance, nourishment of God in the basic features of the life you already live. You know, mm-hmm. and to me, that's that's why mysticism is really also just another way of talking about Christian experience. Mm-hmm. Yep, it's not a special form or a heightened plane. It's just being a Christian. Yeah, I think. Yep, yep. So maybe in the church we need a little, a few less Bible studies and a little bit more contemplative prayer in yep. silent yep. retreats, perhaps. Yep. And don't yeah. get me wrong, Bible studies are important. Don't, don't you know, email that I hate Bible studies. Uh, yeah. <laughs> why do you hate the Bible? <laughs> I don't understand why these guys hate the Bible so much. Right. But yeah, I, but I think maybe, you know, generally speaking, it's, it's probably accurate to say uh, anything Augustine and Gregory both said, Gregory said it better. Um, but, um, but, the, right but I do like sometimes, especially in the confessions, the way that Augustine talks about the world almost as a kind of portal to God. I mean, it's like the, mm-hmm. the sacramentality mm-hmm. of the world is, I think, the beating heart of Christian experience. It's like you have to have the imagination to be able to sit on the max train next to, you know, some dude tweaking out on mushrooms and hear the the running of the rail under the car of the train and smell the musty odor of human beings packed like sardines Mm -hmm. and look at this person Mm -hmm. sitting next to you out of his mind because he's running from who knows what. And you have to be able to look around and with your senses apprehend something more than what you're seeing, Mm -hmm. you know? And that, that ability to do that is the ability to experience God, which is why most of my atheist friends 
that we, when we have conversations, and we do, I, you know, sit, sit, smoke cigarettes on his, on my friend's porch, talking about his, the, just the stuff he's going through. I, what I'm hearing is this dude experienced God all day long, mm-hmm. you know, and yeah. and he and and what's what's interesting are ways in which he does and doesn't see that, you know. So mysticism also blurs the line between the believers and yes. the unbelievers. Yes. It's like. Everything and everyone participates in the goodness of God, and there's sliding scale of apprehension of that, but it, so it blurs those lines in uh, exciting ways. Yeah, yeah, that's really good. Really good, Sharon. Should we be done, or do you want to talk about racism? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's actually a great uh, motto for the United States. <laughs> Should we be done, or do you want to talk about racism? But it's a rhetorical question, right? It's a rhetorical question. But it's a rhetorical question. Yes, we are. We do want to be done. Yeah, yeah let's be yeah. done, no, but no, I think no. we need to, like, whether it's in a year from now or whatever, it'd be fun if you guys are willing to sit with uh, another pastor and another philosopher, um, and that's us, by the way. Uh, <laughs> to do it again. Do, do this again. This is fun. Oh, so yeah. great, man. Thank you guys so much for, for giving us the chance to do it. Yeah, it's yeah. a lot of fun. We always enjoy the chance to be able to sort of, you know, hang out and talk with each other, so this was a nice... Anywhere, yeah. anywhere our listeners can find, your whether it's your papers, your sermons, I don't know if you have any any books or anything between the two uh, of you. You don't need to listen to my sermons, uh, <laughs> um, really. They're really... No, not, you should. You should. No, they're not Absolutely. that great. I think but they should. but um, if you ever want to come visit me in person, I'd love to chill and drink coffee or beer or whiskey and just shoot the breeze. And uh, our church is in uh, Portland, Oregon. It's called Bread and Wine, and you can find us at breadandwine.org. Org, and we're on Facebook. Uh, we have a bread and wine page on on Facebook as well. Or you could just friend friend me on Facebook. I'm a I'm, I'm profligate on there. I'm a real whore. I just anyone who's like uh, shows moderate interest to me, I'm like, yeah, I'm your friend. I'm your friend. I'm your friend. So uh, so I you know message me. Uh, but yeah, that's how you can reach me. Those those the website and okay. the Facebook page. So. Samir? I, I've got uh, a book with Fortress Press, 2015. It's called uh, The Problem of Perception. And the experience of God, amazing and, book. Um, it's it's really it's really not, but it's it's a uh, so the but it's about religious experience. About you know I, I the last few chapters are about Gregory of Nyssa, and it's about the structure of religious experience. And then I um, also have various papers and articles and stuff on various topics about religious experience and about race. I'm very interested in something we haven't talked about: the connection between the stuff we were talking about with respect to mysticism and um, with respect to the sort of vocation of theology and also thinking about race and racial formation and how how we should think about the intersection between race and religion. So mm-hmm. I have written on some of that stuff in the philosophy of religion as well as in theology and I those are projects that I'm still working on. So I you know I suppose somebody could just I uh, have a research gate and an academia page and people could just Awesome. Yeah, we'll put we'll put some of that stuff in the show notes if anybody wants to go deeper. Yeah, Having read yeah, some of that, cool. I'd recommend it. Yeah, um, Samir also has some stuff on the conversation. I think right online, don't you? Um, I have a, I have just like an article I co-wrote with um, Helena Cruz and whatever. But I, you know, yeah, you can just sort of Google me if you're interested, or you know, shoot me a note. I'm at Westmont. Uh, it's S-E-O-T-O at Westmont.edu, and you can send me send me any 
uh, questions or you guys. If you want to show up at his house, this the following is his personal address. Uh, so he loves that. He loves drop-ins. Yeah, yeah. You guys are so sweet, champion each other's work. It's like, Samir is a wild introvert, by the way. So yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So nice. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for being on the show. It was yeah, awesome. thank you time. guys. It was so fun. Awesome. Yeah, yeah right on. Thanks for listening to A Pastor and a Philosopher Walk Into a Bar. We hope you enjoyed the episode. And if you did, please rate and review the podcast before you close your app. You can also share the episode with friends or family members with the links from our social media pages. Gain inside access, extra perks, and more at patreon.com slash a pastor and a philosopher. We're so grateful for your support of the podcast. Until next time, this has been A Pastor and a Philosopher Walk Into a Bar. 